This week's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 19, through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, uh, we are continuing in our Habits of Grace series, and we're reflecting on those habits, those practices that God gives to us to form us in the likeness of Jesus and strengthen us in his grace. And this morning, we're going to consider the habit of prayer. So let me ask, how is your prayer life? Dare I ask that question? If you're anything like me, if someone were to ask you that question, you get a little bit of a knot in your stomach. When I reflect on how, how often I pray, I can feel even a little bit guilty and in some sense, this is good. We, we shouldn't be content or happy if our prayer life isn't strong. But, but it's one of those practices that, that we recognize, man, I, I wish I did more. I, I wish I gave myself more to prayer. And it is important because prayer is vital to our health and our walk with Christ. See, when we're prayerless, our faith is weakened. When, when we're prayerless, we will settle for less love and joy and peace. When we are prayerless, we will be more prone to temptation. And when we are prayerless, we will live our lives with a performance mentality. Here's a burden I have for us, church. If I can be honest, four years into this thing, and my burden is that we could be content with being doers rather than communers. Like, we will do a lot of stuff. We will do a lot of good activity, whether it be in our work or in our homes or in our jobs or whether it be serving in the church or serving people in our community or sharing our faith. Lots of doing. But we don't take time to just sit with the Lord, to be silent and to be still and to pray and spend time with him and allow him to shape us. We think, hey, doing, that's the way things are going to change. That's my power. That's the way I'm going to move the ball forward. That's the way things are going to get done. That's the way I'm going to feel confident and hopeful is if I'm in a flurry of activity. And then here's what ends up happening. We functionally live this way. Man, I'm too busy to pray. I mean, I'll get around to it when my schedule clears or maybe I get a quiet moment at the end of my day, but I got things I got to do, important things on my calendar Friends, this is a performance mentality. When our activity, when our actions are front and center, when there are hope and our confidence, that is the essence of performance. And here's what I'm concerned with for myself and for us as a church, is that if we're not careful, this becomes our culture. This becomes the culture of First City Church. Lots of activity, but devoid of deep intimate communion and relationship with God. Prayer is the lifeblood of a disciple. Prayer is absolutely necessary. Or if we want to return to our uh, metaphor that we've been using throughout this series, prayer is the sail itself. 
So if you think about sailing, in order to capture the wind and move the boat forward, that sail has to be connected to a frame, and there's ropes and pulleys, so you don't just have the sail, you have the entire structure there. And, And those things are important, you need both, but if the structure doesn't have a sail, the ship isn't gonna move. You could raise that structure in the air and nothing happens. And look, the other habits of grace that we're gonna talk about and have talked about, they're vital, they're necessary parts of the structure. We need them to grow. But if we don't have prayer, if we don't have that sail, then it's gonna, those things are gonna be powerless because here's what happens. When we don't pray, we do those things in our own strength rather than depending on the Spirit. Prayer is what connects us to. It's how we grab hold of the power of the Spirit of God to be shaped in Christ's likeness and be strengthened in the grace he has poured out on us. Here's how Pastor Tim Keller talks about the necessity and centrality of prayer. Prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. And so my heart for this message this morning is that we would be compelled to be communers first. Yes, lots to do. We should be full of activity. The Christian life is a life that is lived. It's proactive. But may that doing, may that work, may that activity come from our communion with God first. So rather than thinking, man, I'm too busy to pray, we follow the example of Martin Luther who says, I'm too busy not to pray. So may we be compelled to pray. However, guilt is not a good motivator. Guilt will not motivate us to pray, at least not in the right way and not for very long. So we need to be compelled by the grace of God because it is grace that will draw us into a thriving life of prayer. So this morning, I want to look at a prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3. And this is a way to hold up important truths about prayer that I trust the Spirit of God will use to compel us by his grace. And so three points for us this morning from this passage. The person of prayer, the power of prayer, and then the practice of prayer. And so the first truth that compels us to pray is to whom we pray. Paul says in verses 14 and 15, he bows his knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul prays to his heavenly father. This echoes the very way Jesus taught his disciples to pray. In fact, if you were with us a couple years ago, we went through the Sermon on the Mount, and we talked about the Lord's Prayer. This first point, I made almost the exact same point in that message as well, but this is something that we need to grasp and regularly return to, the person of prayer. Look, prayer is not connecting to some abstract force. It's not this sort of centering ourselves or practicing mindfulness. It's going to God, who is our Father. And God, as our Father, means he's a person. He's not an idea. He's not a theological category. He's a person, someone we can have real relationship with. And yet, and yet, how often do we treat God as a theological or philosophical concept rather than a person. I mean, think about how weird this would get if we did this with the people that we have relationships with, like your kids or your spouse or your friends, and you were like, 
I'm just going to interact with you as this concept of friend or concept of wife or concept of husband or child. You are the ideal child. And here are the facts about what it means to be a child and childness, childishness as a concept. Never actually engaging them as a person. It feels so weird to even say it because it is weird. It's very broken because we know we're meant to actually have relationship. Yet, this is what we do with God. Boy, we can write great systematic theologies, which are not bad. Love them. We can come up with these wonderful categories. We can explain theology and theological concepts And that's all we do. That's how we relate to God. We know a lot of things, but never experience him. That God is a person doesn't mean that he is generic and undefined, though. Scripture gives us a very clear category, Father. This is an intentional category. Paul writes that God is the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that God is the father of all, this speaks to the fact that he is the creator, that he made us, that we come from him. And as the creator, as the father of all, he stands in authority. He has all power. He establishes and defines the universe. He defines reality. He sets what is good and evil, right and wrong, meaning and purpose. He is the center of existence. And we owe all allegiance to him. We, We owe absolute obedience to him because of who he is. But but here's an important truth for us to recognize. Though God is positionally father of all, he's not relationally father of all. Though he is positionally a father of all, it doesn't mean that he has a fatherly relationship with everyone. Because here is the truth. As Paul says, if you go back earlier in Ephesians chapter two, Paul says this, that apart from Christ, in and of ourselves, We are dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. We give ourselves over to sin and sinful desires and lusts, and we indulge in it. And what this means is that we don't relate to God as a father, but rather we relate to God as an enemy. We're in rebellion against him. We have said, I do not accept your authority. I do not accept your definition of reality and goodness and righteousness. I'm going to rebel against it and do my own thing. And so we are not children of God, Ephesians says, apart from Christ, we're children of wrath. The the righteous judgment of God hangs over us because of our sin. But this is where the gospel is such good news for us. Because what the gospel says is this, while we were dead in our sins, not when we cleaned ourselves up, but when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive in Christ Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took our sin and our punishment on himself. He bared the judgment that you and I deserved. He he stood in our place. The righteous wrath of God was poured out on him so that you and I could be forgiven. So here is the grace and love and mercy of God for us. He has spared no expense. He has pulled no punches. His grace and his mercy chased us down in the darkest pit of our sin so that we can be forgiven and restored and healed so that God could be our father. He chased you down so that you could know him as a father so that when you come to know him, when you put your faith in Christ, you can call him daddy as Galatians 4 and Romans 8 tell us. Oh, this is an incredible truth 
God eagerly desires to know you in that way, that you can know him as a father, that you can have an intimate relationship with him. You see, the fact that we can call God father, can call him daddy, terms of affection says something, because how you address someone determines intimacy. We recognize this. Like, kids, who do, what do you call your teachers? Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, why? That's to say they're an authority over you. They're not your friend. They may be friendly, but they're not your buddy. When we address a judge, we say your honor to recognize, hey, you're in a place of position and authority. You're not my friend. You're not my buddy. But what do we do with our parents? Mom, dad, why do we call them that? Because it reflects the relationship. Yeah, they still have a position of authority, but we're in intimate relationship with them. We know them. There's a closeness. There's a love. There's an intimacy. And so if we, if we fail to see this, we miss out on intimacy. Look, if I called Mindy, Mrs. Hemmelman at home, hey, Mrs. Hemmelman, how was your day? Hey, Mrs. Hemmelman, can I help you with something? If it was Mrs. Hemmelman, what am I doing? I'm stiff-arming intimacy. But if I'm calling her by her name or the affectionate nicknames I have for you, that's none of your business what it is, <laughs> it shows that I have an intimate relationship. This is the access God gives us to him by his grace. He is our father. Oh, that the grace of God would draw us near to him in prayer. That we'd stop treating him as an idea or a concept, but as our father who we can have deep relationship with. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, he reminds us that God is a person and what the implication for us is. Now, personality and fatherhood carry with them the idea of the possibility of personal acquaintance. This is admitted, I'd say, in theory, but for millions of Christians, nevertheless, God is no more real than he is to the non-Christians. They go through life trying to love an ideal and be loyal to a mere principle. Over and against all this cloudy vagueness stands the clear scriptural doctrine that God can be known in personal experience. A loving personality dominates the Bible, walking among the trees of the garden and breathing fragrance over every scene. Always a living person is present, speaking, pleading, loving, working, and manifesting himself whenever and wherever his people have the receptivity necessary to receive. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The continuous and unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the soul of the redeemed man is the throbbing heart of the New Testament religion. The grace of God given through Jesus Christ means we can experience continuous and unembarrassed, meaning we don't have to be shy or distant or reluctant. There, there is an interchange, not only of thought, but of love. If this is the glorious truth of the gospel, if this is how God wants to relate to us, we have to ask the question, why are we so reluctant to pray? Why are we so reluctant to relate to God as a person? Why does it feel safer to relate to him as an idea? Why do we avoid intimacy with God? Why are we afraid to be vulnerable with God? I wonder, can you be vulnerable with God? Can you be utterly undone and open? I mean, he knows all things. But can you expose everything to him, laid bare in front of him? If this is how he invites you to know him, what keeps you from that? You know, the prayers in Scripture 
if you look through them, they're shockingly real and honest and bold and vulnerable. And this is because these people, not because they're theological giants or super Christians, many of them were a hot mess, but they recognized that God was their father. He was a person. They could know him, and they ran to him to know him, and it produced intimacy and boldness and realness in their prayers. They drew near to him. So let me ask again, can you be vulnerable with God? Can you draw near to him as a father? This living, speaking, pleading, working, loving God in person offers himself to you through Jesus Christ. Well, what keeps you from pouring out your heart, bringing your pains and your sins and your needs to him? Well, what keeps you from trusting him as a father who is good and loving? If you truly saw God as a father, if you truly recognized the heart he has for you, and his desire for you to be near to him, how would that change your prayer life? This is the person to whom we pray. Paul then turns his attention to the power. Knowing God is a loving father is one grace that compels us to pray, but the power of God at work in us and through prayer is another grace that compels us. Excuse me for a moment. In verses 16 and 17, he begins to explain why he prays to God the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, to be strengthened with power through the spirits, so Christ may dwell in our hearts. That This is what Paul is praying for. He's praying for strength, and he directs it towards the inner man because Paul recognizes that as our inner man, this is the core of our being, our heart, our affection, our will, as that goes, so goes our life. Because out of the heart, we live. And so Paul is praying that they would be strengthened in their heart. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Well, what's shaping you? What's forming you? Uh, what, what is shaping your inner being? What is shaping your heart? What is shaping your character? What is shaping the things you most love and desire? And one of the ways that we can see this, one of the ways to answer this question, is to see what you look to for power. Where do you go for power? Where do you go for hope? What do you look to for power in order to be successful in your work or in your job, your marriage, your parenting, your relationships, school? Where do you go for power with your walk with God or serving in the church or caring for other people? Like the things we look to to empower us reveal what we value. So if it's knowledge and experience, then if you value knowledge and experience above all things, and you will seek knowledge and you will seek experience, and you will love those things, and you will put your hope in those things, you will think, I need more of that if I'm going to be successful. I will judge my own sense of right and wrongness by how much knowledge I have. If it's money and financial stability, man, then we will love money and financial stability. That will be the hope. That will be the thing that we think, I need more of that. And if I'm going to be successful, I need those things. Oh, if it's your health, or, or what if it's your ability to control circumstances? If those are the things that you look to for power, those are the things that you most love, most value, 
Those are the things that you will judge your entire performance based on whether or not you're measuring up. But here's the thing about power. It is only as good as its limits. Look, your knowledge and experience will always come up short because you can't know everything and you can't experience everything. Your money can disappear just as quickly as you made it. But you know, if, if it's position and status that you think, man, if I have that and I have power, I can be successful, that position and status can be taken away from you. Like if it's your health, your strength, physical strength, that will fail. If it's your control, good grief. We are so out of control. We have so little control. If these are your power, then your power is limited. If these are your power, then you're ultimately going to fail and you're ultimately going to be disappointed. Plus, how do these things shape you? If these are the things you are valuing and put your hope in and running to for power, what kind of person are they making you? Are they making you a more hope-filled, faith-filled, love-filled, peace-filled, joy-filled servant? Are they making you more sacrificial and less selfish? Are they building your affections for Jesus and more worship of him? Oh, come on, let's be honest. When is the last time you met a know-it-all or someone who was driven by money or someone who sought power and status or someone who was a control freak and they were the most joy-filled, faith-filled, peace-filled person you've ever met? No. We can all be humble because we're all those people. We can be honest about this, and here's what the honesty allows us to see, is that when we run, for, run at those things as our source of power, we become miserable to be around. When those are the things that are shaping us, what they are making us into is not something that people generally want to be around. It's not hope, and it's not joy, and it's not peace, and it's not faith, and it's not godliness and self-sacrifice. And so let's be honest about the fact that the things we run to for power, they fall short, and they're making us into something that doesn't look more like Jesus. And God offers us something so much greater. Like look at the power he gives to us by his grace. Power according to the riches of his glory. You want to talk about a source of power? Like God's glory is the summation of his greatness. It's his holiness and his goodness and his beauty. And the glory of God, it is infinite. It's eternal. It has no limits. It's an inexhaustible power, and with it comes perfect strength. That is the source of the power that God gives. Out of the riches of his glory, his infinite worth and value, he pours that out on you to give you power. And what comes from the riches of his glory? His spirit, his very presence, Christ dwelling, that means taking up residence in you, making his home, setting, setting his, his sort of his stuff out in your home. You know how you set up residence in someone's home? You set out your stuff and your clothes and you sort of take over the space? That's Jesus doing that in our heart. That's the glory and the riches of God. That's the source of power that he gives that's the source of power Paul wants the Ephesian church to draw from. That's the source of power Paul is praying that what God would pour out on them. His power working in the very everyday nooks and crannies of your life. The riches of his glory and his power working in your job, 
and in your marriage and in your parenting and in your relationships and in your walk with the Lord and how you serve in the church and how you love and serve other people. His power changing and transforming and renewing you into a more hope-filled and joy-filled and peace-filled, grace-dependent, loving, godly person. This is the beauty of prayer because it is in prayer we tap into this power. It is, in this, it is in prayer that we experience the fullness of this power. Look, Paul prays that the Ephesian church would experience it because this isn't natural. We don't do this in our own strength. It doesn't happen through our efforts. It is a work of God accomplished in prayer. Yes, Paul is praying for other people, but he is showing what prayer, why we need prayer. He's showing the power that is found in prayer, tapping into the very riches of God's glory. We connect to the strength and the power of the Spirit. We are shaped by Christ dwelling in us. Our dependence grows as we grow in prayer. This is the power of God at work in us when we pray. There's something else I want to highlight in this verses 17 through 19. Gives us this wonderful glimpse of how prayer and the word work together. So continuing in his prayer, Paul prays this for the Ephesians being rooted and grounded in love, that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul is praying that the Ephesians might have the strength to comprehend the scope of Christ's love for them, a love that surpasses knowledge, to understand God's amazing plan of salvation given to the world, they need strength from God for that. And look, this is not because the gospel is so convoluted and complex. It's so simple a child can believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So this isn't a matter of understanding the facts of the gospel. This isn't an issue of the complexity of the gospel. What we struggle to understand is the fullness. We struggle to believe the fullness of God's glorious goodness and grace to us. Look, we struggle to fully understand what it means to be completely forgiven, which is why we still struggle with guilt. But we struggle to understand what it means that the power of sin is broken in our lives. This is why we still struggle with sin. We struggle to understand what it means to be united to Christ and have his righteousness, which is why we're still going around trying to justify ourselves with our performance. We struggle to understand what it means that we are adopted sons and daughters of God, which is why we still try to find our identity in our jobs and our wealth and our status and our image and our sexuality. And Paul wanted them to know the greatness of God's love for them, its height and breadth and depth and length, to, to see just how expansive it is. He wanted them to get inside of it and see, look, you're never going to find its ceiling you're never going to find the walls. You're never going to find the basement. And have you ever been in a building that just wowed you with its immense size? Like I remember one time walking into the University of Nebraska's library, first time I was in there, and I grew up in a small town and attended a small college, so my experience with libraries was really small, like two rooms. Walking into that university library and just being able to explore forever and ever and ever and books everywhere, it felt like the, just the building never ended. You get inside that and you explore and there's joy in that. That's like the love of God. Getting inside that, experiencing, going to the depths of it. This was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. 
This is what he wanted them to experience. And this is what happens to us in prayer. The power of prayer, it more fully opens up to us the truths of God's word. It's in prayer that we begin to understand and experience the love and grace and mercy and power of God that he declares in his word. Prayer takes us beyond mere head knowledge and into a knowledge that surpasses knowledge, as this passage says, to a love that surpasses knowledge. This is experiencing God's love, experiencing Christ's love, experiencing supernatural transformation, that our minds and our hearts and our affections and our emotions, our wills, our entire being is changed. Because look, when you're loved this radically and you experience this love, ah, guilt has a way of going away. When you are loved this radically and you experience this love, man, sin doesn't seem as sweet anymore. The things you used to run to, you're like, nothing compares to knowing Christ and his love. Like when, when you experience the radical love and grace to you, who cares what your job is? Who cares about my status? Who cares about my performance? Because there's something greater. I have a greater identity. When we are radically loved and we experience this radical love for ourselves, we are changed. We are made bold. We will pour our lives out for others. We will serve. We will risk. We will forgive. We will not let petty differences separate us, but we will be unified. Oh, the power of God, the truth of God's word is we grab that in prayer and its power is released in us. Look, knowing scripture, knowing theology, absolutely vital. Man, if you want to sit down and talk theology with me, love to. One of the funnest things in the world for me. I love it. But far often we're too content with knowledge but no actual experience. And we can check a box and say, look, I know that theological category, but it's been a long time since I've been face down worshiping the Lord undone. Why do we settle for mere head knowledge? Why do we settle just for categories. And I wonder, those of you that are theology adept, those of you that are drawn to theology and study, when was the, is there actual power in your life? Are you being transformed? Are your affections growing for Christ? Is that theology leading you to love Jesus more and worship him more? And if not, can I ask lovingly, how's your prayer life? Are you connecting those things? Are you experiencing those truths in prayer? Oh, let me encourage you. Don't settle. Experience the fullness of what God has for you. And really think of it this way. If I can use an illustration. If we want the power, we want fire, what do we need? We need fuel. We need kindling. We need something that will keep that fire going. And we need a spark, a match. Look, the spirit is the fuel. Without that fuel, no fire is possible. And the word of God, the truth of God, it is kindling. It makes the fire go and continue. But we need that spark of prayer. We need something that will ignite it. Because look, if it's just prayer and fuel, what happens? Emotion and experience and awesome, but it will flame out quickly. It will not be sustained. If we don't have any fuel and it's just the word and we're trying to pray, then we're just performing without the spirit but you put all three together and there's a fire and it will sustain and it will grow and it will have substance. So let us go to God's word, yes, but let us go prayerfully. 
So we go to God, our Father, in prayer. We experience his strength and power in our daily lives. This is grace to us. So what does it mean to practice prayer? How should we think about the practice of prayer? Well, I want to give you four categories. And again, this is to help you take one step forward. We'll post more resources through CCB on our Facebook page. But but just as a way, okay, take one step forward. First, pray consistently. If prayer is this vital, this important, if God is this available to us, let us pray consistently. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, pray without ceasing. This speaks to the ongoing, continual communion we can have with God throughout our day. So I want to encourage you, work to develop this habit. This doesn't mean you need to sit and take a full hour every single day. But it does mean take time. Don't buy the lie, just like with you don't have time to read the word, don't buy the lie that you don't have time to pray. Oh, you're too busy not to pray. There's too much at stake not to pray. Your heart is too valuable not to pray. The the voices and the the, the things out there that want to shape you into something that is not like Jesus are too persistent for you not to pray. And so let me encourage you to pray consistently. Pray in your car. Pray when you're getting ready. Pray when you're doing chores around the house. Pray at work. Pray in the shower. Any opportunity you have, be praying, trusting the Lord, depending on the Lord, asking the Lord to work in you. But but let me also encourage you, carve out undistracted still time. You do need the silence and the stillness. You do need that time where you're not distracted by another activity. So work to develop this habit. And look, if you, try to, if, you, if you have not been praying for a long time and you try to sit down for an hour, it ain't gonna happen. You're gonna be distracted. It takes time to develop this habit. Start small. Look, five minutes of undistracted prayer is better than nothing. Five minutes of undistracted prayer and then kind of praying throughout your day, even while you're doing stuff, that's better and you can grow more and more and more. Look, the grace of God is available to you at every moment. Pray consistently and pray biblically. We need our prayer life to be shaped by scripture. We don't look inside. We don't rely on our feelings. We don't make up who God is as we go. No, we are shaped in prayer by God's word and God's truth. We respond in prayer to who God has says that he is. We need our minds and our hearts directed by God's truth. So pray biblically. And here's what's beautiful about this. Scripture is your greatest teacher. Like if you're struggling, how do I pray? How do I learn to pray? Take prayers from Scripture. Go to the Psalms. The Psalms are full of prayers. And just start praying those prayers. Make them your words. Or Do a study and find the prayers in the Bible like this one. Here's a a prayer of the Apostle Paul. There's other prayers of people in Scripture. Find those prayers. Make them your words because this is what's going to happen. You're going to be shaped by the truth of God's word. So let Scripture give you the language. And what you're going to find is this language is normal. It's earthy. It's down to earth. It's, It's human language. It's not abstract concepts. It's born out of real life, real experience. And here's what else the scripture leads you to. Like you and I on our own, what do we tend to do? We probably tend to pray like maybe one type of prayer. Scripture leads us into the fully 
robust variety of prayer. It gives us language for prayers that are praise and adoration and confession and mourning and sadness and cries for help and thanksgiving and requests and petitions and joy. It's the full experience of a human. For every stage of life, for every experience of life, for every emotion, there is a prayer. And so scripture will give us a language that shapes our entire life, that prayer will center our entire experience. So let us pray biblically. Let us pray true things about God. Let us also pray boldly. This is why we need God's word to shape us, because God's word tells us to pray boldly. Pray in faith. Our Father is not stingy with his grace. He's not stingy with his gifts. He says, ask and keep on asking. Like, look, the prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians 3, this is a big one, that they would be able to understand something that they cannot understand on their own. Pray big. Pray big for the transformation in you. Pray big for the things that you are desiring. Uh, Let us pray for any sort of resource that we need. If we're in need of financial resource, if we're in need of health, if we're in need of our needs, if you're just thinking, okay, I have needs, pray big prayers. If you want to see someone set free from sin, pray big prayers. If you want to see someone come to salvation, pray big prayers. If you want to see somebody set free from things like anxiety and depression, pray big prayers. God invites us to pray big. Like, look, let's not let that stupid prosperity gospel garbage cause us to swing the pendulum the other way where we think we can't even ask God for things. Like, look, that stuff is born of bad theology, but if we go to good theology, what are we going to find? Pray boldly. Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. So let's pray boldly. And here's the beautiful thing. We don't need to manipulate God. We don't have to impress him. We don't have to clean ourselves up. Look, we're accepted, we're loved, we're his children because of Jesus Christ. And like any good father, he doesn't make his kid perform. He gives because he loves. So pray consistently, pray biblically, pray boldly, and finally, pray with others. Prayer is personal, but it's also communal. We go to the Lord together as a family. We learn to pray for one another. We experience grace together. We're strengthened together. We're unified. God works powerfully through the prayers of his people. And there's something that happens the way that we are transformed and knit together and unified in prayer, the way there's an amplification, so to speak. So look, here's a shameless plug for Monday night prayer. Once a month, gathering as God's people to pray. Look, if you want to experience God's power, transformation, his presence, like that's a great way to, to get in on that. It's a great way to learn how to pray. Again, this is not guilting you into that, just saying here's an opportunity. So let us pray consistently, let us pray biblically, let us pray boldly, let us pray with others. Look, in light of God's grace, in his presence, in his power, let us be communers first. Amen?